0: Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, literally he knew her and the word knew, some of your translations say that, Adam knew Eve and that word knew is experiential knowledge, so yes it's speaking of sexual intimacy that he has with Eve so that they will now have an offspring, but that's a, it's a carnal knowing, it's an experiential physical knowing, remember that we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's experiential knowledge. In this case, it's a good thing because they're following what the Lord told them to do in the first place, that is, be fruitful and multiply. But experiential knowledge does not lead to godliness or spirituality. Okay, But he knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, Cain. And she said, I have gotten Canita, a man-child, with the help of the Lord. So Cain, Cain, means possession. I have a possession here. It's from the root word kin, which means to possess, but it also can mean to form or give shape to something. So It's kind of got that double meaning. And you might think of it this way. A sculptor forms his sculpture and possesses it. So that's how the word works both ways. It's formed and possessed as an artist would paint a picture. The, the artist's name will always go with that picture. You don't talk about, you know, uh, a Fred. You talk about a Picasso. Even if Fred happened to buy one. So the one who forms is the one who possesses. And what we have here is another Hebrew wordplay. We may have mentioned this before, but it's with the word "kana" or kanita, which sounds like Cain. And if you're saying kain or "kana" in the Hebrew, they sound very similar. And "kana" means to get... Or to possess. Or it also can be translated formed. Psalm 139.13 For you formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. Well, in the same way, uh, Cain was formed. But also gotten by Eve, by Hava. Remember, Eve's name is Hava in the Hebrew. Trying to keep track of all these things. Proverbs 8.22 says, The Lord possessed me. At the beginning of his way before his works of old, that's wisdom speaking, saying the Lord formed me, the Lord possessed me. Same word, Cana or Cana, which sounds like again Cain. But here's the thing: Eve's cry reveals that she believed Cain was the answer to God's promise. The blessing. Remember that he pours out in the midst of the cursing? Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And her seed is a miraculous thing. And she recognizes that. And we see that even in in her cry here at the birth of Cain. I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. That's the technical literal Hebrew. Even the word with was added into the Masoretic text, which is the most recent Hebrew text that we have. The Septuagint also adds in, so that Greek translation adds in a a with the help of, but the actual text, the original going back prior to that, it's I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. Now what's interesting is that the translators don't know what to do with something like that. You're opening up Genesis, you're going to start translating from Hebrew to English and you realize, whoa, I've gotten a man-child, the Lord, that can't be right. (laughs) Arnold Fruchtenbaum says because translators are not generally theologians they fail to see what's really happening here thinking Moses needed a bit of help expressing himself they have added phrases such as the help of but the Hebrew shows Eve's understanding of Genesis 3.15 was that the Redeemer who had come of the seed of the woman was to be a God-man miraculous something supernatural Eve's interpretation of Cain's birth is a good example of correct theology <laughs> with the wrong application because Cain was no God man. The theology was sound. What she understood when she heard God say, her seed, that's legit. But she applies it to her firstborn. Here's the deal, this is it, here comes our Savior. Any of you who have children, have you ever did you think that, you know, when the first child was born? Oh, here comes our little angel. <laughs> Only to find out, not so much. Fruchtenbaum writes, he was not the God-man, but his birth did produce the initial hope. And that was Eve's hope. That's Eve's cry. But instead of getting the God-man, or even a godly man, she ended up raising Cain. Verse 2. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel, Abel we say, was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we have a shepherd and a gardener. These first two brothers. Avel, interesting, his name means breath as in vapor. As in here and gone. No substance, nothing really to it. She names Abel breath. Boy, that's that's almost prophetic because he would live a short life as in a breath, and he's gone. And life is short. But in this brevity, it seems as though, and I'm going to speculate just a little bit here, it seems as though maybe by the time Abel came along, Eve already knew the brevity of hope. That hope can be like a vapor. Especially when you put your hope in another person. When they let you down. And perhaps she put hope that Cain was going to Be something good, but again, by Abel's birth, she now names her second son Breath. Life is short, and people disappoint. And not to be negative, let's just be realistic for a moment. Whenever we come to a negative thing, I think I'm really a positive guy. Now, Cheryl and I will be driving down the road as we were last Saturday. And I'll be just talking along and feeling great and in a good mood and sharing and saying stuff. And five minutes later, she'll say, "Can you just say something positive?" I'm like, "What? Was I really grumping the whole? I didn't feel like I was grumpy. I was just pointing stuff out, like that idiot in that car over the, you know, what that was that was grumpy." Eve's folly. Eve's folly was in looking to her immediate seed as the hope of their salvation, and there was no hope. Not in Cain. He was not a hopeful son. And so all this hope of salvation began to fall apart in the raising of Cain as she called her next kid Vapor. (laughs) Our possession, our one who's formed, and our Vapor. She could have called Abel, whatever, and it would have been about the same. Here comes another one. Vapor. Eve just needed to look a little further down the line. And here's where our hope is. And here's where our joy is and here's where our optimism is in a short life in which people disappoint and that is Galatians 4 verse 4 when the fullness of the time came God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under law so that He might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and Jesus is the seed who does not disappoint who will never disappoint. By the way, Jesus is the seed who is far more than a vapor. He doesn't come and go. He's not like some religious experiences. They come and they go. They're mountaintop and then they're over. He's not like some fading thing. He does not disappoint. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.6, this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner stone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. The picture of it is, is something solid, something lasting, something that does not disappoint. Jesus doesn't disappoint. Everyone else will disappoint you at some point. And most of you know this. Sometimes we forget, and then another person comes along and disappoints us, and we're surprised. Well, welcome to humanity. We are imperfect beings who have great capacity to disappoint each other. Jesus never will. You trust Him. He does not disappoint. He is the stone-laid in Zion. Now, now Listen. Peter says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Peter is quoting from the Greek Septuagint. But the original quote comes from Isaiah 28.16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So Peter quotes, disappointed... Isaiah says, disturbed, what's, what's the word there? That word disappointed, disturbed, it's Yahis in the Hebrew. And note this, it's wonderful, the word is rushed. Hurried, harried. He who believes in Jesus is never rushed. Therefore, not disappointed. Because with Jesus, you don't go rushing headlong into a relationship that happens too fast. With Jesus, you're not pushed to know Him now and immediately and everything that there is to know about Him. With Jesus, there is no rush. He's got eternity to work with us. And He's not disappointing because the more we know Him, the more we know love. The more we understand Him, the more we understand grace. He is the hope of humanity, her seed, and He came in the fullness of time. No rush. This was not the birth of Cain. Jesus would come again in the full i love that phrase in the fullness of time god waits until it's right and good and it will not disappoint well whatever eve understood as a mother the names cain possession and abel breath are darkly prophetic of what was to come So it came about in the course of time, verse 3, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. Now it is exactly as it sounds to regard is to look upon with favor or to accept. God looked upon Abel's offering with favor. Oh, good job. Thank you, Abel. And he looked upon Cain's offering and went, really? One was accepted, one was rejected. One was looked upon with favor, one was not. And if you've been in a family with more than two children and the other child is looked upon with favor and you're not, you know how that feels. And many people come to this passage and they cry unfair. Those who know the Lord tend to come to this passage and go, well, it's got to be fair somehow. But it just has this tendency to bother us, to, to bug us. What's going on here? Abel and Cain, they both bring an offering to the Lord, and one's accepted and the other is not. This is, this is a really good example of how preconceived notions affect our understanding. And of how what we bring to the Bible affects how we understand the Bible. Did the Lord regard their offerings fairly? And I absolutely believe He did. But again, if you approach this believing God is unfair, you will cry foul. If you approach this believing that the Lord is the righteous judge, you know that He must be fair. So how can we know so early on in the Bible that this is not an unfair event. I asked this of our staff earlier this morning. What do you know of the Lord so far? Not, not what do you know of the Lord so far in your life, but from Genesis 1 to this point in chapter 4, what do you know of the Lord? What do you understand of the Lord? Well, we can begin with His handling of Adam and Eve. What do He do with them? It's a good starting point to understand what he's now doing with their son what did he do with Adam and Eve listen if there was no mercy with God story would be over there would be no chapter four if there was no grace with God we wouldn't even be here to have this conversation it would have been done so before we even get to Cain and Abel we understand a God of grace and mercy and compassion even when man gives up on the Lord he doesn't give up on man you're going to see this marvelously and very clearly before we're even done tonight. That God doesn't depart, doesn't quit, doesn't give up, doesn't wander off, doesn't leave. That's not in His nature. So we know when the Lord comes to the two boys and they bring their offering, we already know He's a God of mercy. We already know He's a God of grace. We already know He's a God of relationship who truly cares about these created beings, who, while He loves all of His creation, Truly loves humanity. We understand this going in. And by the way, Cain and Abel were not blind to God's standards at this point. There's more going on here, perhaps, than might meet the eye. Note that he says, it came about in the course of time, verse 3. In the course of time. This is a Hebrew way of saying, at an appointed time it came about at an appointed time this is a specific time and there are those who believe and there's good evidence for this that this is an early indication of Shabbat you could almost say it came about on the Sabbath now it doesn't say that and I don't want to write in words to the scriptures but in the course of time means an appointment it means a specific time and so, some of the rabbis say that's that Sabbath. Well, well, wait. Sabbath didn't come about until until the law of Moses, right? Exodus chapter twenty, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus twenty, verse eleven. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, that, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, when did the Lord bless the Sabbath day and make it holy? On day seven. Long before Torah law was written down, God had already established the Sabbath day. And by the way, when God comes along in the Jewish law, Exodus 20, and says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, it must be something they already did. Or at least something that some already did. Or that they were aware of because He's telling them to remember it. Don't forget this day. He codifies it in the law. He establishes it in the law as a thing. I want this every week I want you taken Saturday off. Be sure that you do. Remember that. But that doesn't mean it was not in existence beforehand and some believe that the appointed time when Cain and Abel are coming to the Lord was on Shabbat. And then it also says that Cain and Abel brought they brought an offering to the Lord came about in the course of time that Cain brought, Abel brought, and that indicates to an appointed place. They came to an appointed time, at the appointed time, to an appointed place. Do you remember the end of last week's study? Look at verse 24 of chapter 3. He drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed two, or, or they stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Stationed is enthroned. He enthroned the cherubim. Cherubim is plural, so at least two. East of the Garden, where the court of sacrifice was east of the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. This is a location that's very specific and very interesting and some believe, and no, we can't know, but some believe this was the appointed place of offering to the Lord. That when they came out of Eden, they did not travel far from Eden. Cain ultimately is going to go much further. But... That they stayed near to where the garden was and that they made offering there before the cherubim, which would be very similar later in Jewish law. Remember, they make the offering before the cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So this continues to play out. So whether or not this was the place, what we can know and what we can draw out of this verse is that they brought their offerings To the appointed time and place of worship. In other words, Cain and Abel went to church. They have now come to church. They have some understanding that they are to bring an offering to God. They have some knowledge of what this offering is to be. I believe they both knew exactly what God wanted. What he expected. What the standard of sacrifice was. God established sacrifice, again, not in Mosaic Law. We're going to see sacrifices given throughout Genesis before we ever get to Exodus. He established sacrifice when He had to sacrifice an animal to put skins on Adam and Eve as they left the garden. That was, as we've talked about, the first sacrifice. So already there's something established here. There's a process. And they bring their offerings at the appointed time to the place of worship to God And I believe going into this, and and we can't know because we don't see more than what the text tells us, but what's implied here is they knew what they were to bring. And Abel brought what what was expected, he brought the standard, and Cain brought what he wanted to bring because it was easier. And there's something in this when we show up at church, isn't there? Sometimes we bring our spirit ready to receive, ready to give, ready to worship, ready to minister. Ready to be involved in what God's doing? Or sometimes we bring what we want to bring. An attitude. Or we bring our frustration. Or we bring our self-centeredness. Do you bring what you want or do you bring what the Lord's calling for? When you come to the appointed place. Well, they brought theirs. Abel brought the firstlings, literally the firstborn. The first and best of his flock, and even their fat portions. Note that it says that. He brought the fat portions, and that's important because by Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16, we see that the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as food, and offering by fire for a soothing aroma, all the fat is the Lord's. This was the good stuff. Now we understand later that (laughs) fat is not healthy for us. So while it can be the kind of chewy, yummy part of the steak, it's really not the best in terms of health for you. And God would tell Israel later on, look, give me the fat. You keep the good meat, I'll take the fat. But the point is that the fat portion spoke of the best that was to be offered, and it was for the Lord. And Abel somehow knows this. What we know of God so far is that he is fair, that he is gracious, that he is merciful. Do you think he would tell Cain, or think he would tell Abel and not tell Cain? Do you think he would have an expectation that Cain hadn't heard about or didn't know about? Just be reasonable and think about who God is. Cain, uh, instead of bringing uh, the firstborns of a flock, he brought a basket of fruit. Probably wrapped in cellophane, I don't know. But he didn't even bring, note this, he didn't even bring first fruits. The word reshit is not used here. It's not first fruits, it's the best, it's just he brought some fruit lay that out before the Lord but understand it wasn't just flock versus fruit or blood versus juice <laughs> it wasn't the best well it was it was the best versus the men. it was faith on Abel's part versus works on Cain's part. you know what the problem with works is works are never enough. And works tend to reflect not the greatest attitude. Works are, I'm doing just what I think I have to do to appease. Faith is, I'm doing whatever I can to please. And we see faith in Abel, and we see works in Cain. And as I said, even before the law, sacrifice was a thing, but sacrifice has always been, true sacrifice, has always been an act of faith. In Genesis, we'll see a lamb for a man. As Adam and Eve understood, the Lord had sacrificed an animal to cover their shame. And Abel sacrifices a lamb of his flock of the best, and that wouldn't have been easy to do. And Abraham, in Genesis, believed that the Lord would provide a lamb. Which is interesting, that's Genesis 22, and the Lord provided a ram But Abraham said the Lord will provide a lamb and ultimately He would provide a lamb in that same place. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But in Genesis we see this, a lamb for a man. In Exodus we see a lamb for a family. As the Passover lamb was sacrificed and the blood was painted onto the doorpost and onto the lintel of the house. In Leviticus... What was a lamb for a man and then a lamb for a family now becomes a lamb for a nation in the sacrificial lamb of Yom Kippur. We see the sacrifice is continuing. Why is that? God is not into gore. But He is a communicator and a teacher. And He communicated the brutal, bloody, life-taking outcome of sin. He's painting a picture. Let me share something with you. I had a conversation with Donna last I guess it was on Sunday, talking about the serpent. And some people have said, you know, you've got the serpent, this innocent serpent. I mean, whether you like snakes or not, what did the serpent do to deserve the curse? He just was indwelt by Satan. How is that the serpent's fault? And people sometimes feel kind of bad that the snake gets cursed and has to go on his belly and all snakes after that get that curse. We need to understand something. We need to not take animal kind and raise it to the level of humankind. This was an animal. The serpent was a chosen animal by God to teach a lesson, to paint a picture. And from the garden all the way to the end, we see a picture of the devil. We see a picture of evil. We see a picture of sin in the serpent. That's why God created the serpent. How can you say that? Because it's the same reason that God created a lamb. Because a lamb from the very beginning all the way forward would be a picture of God's sacrifice, of His love, and of what Jesus Himself ultimately would do. But both the serpent and the lamb are animals. They are not human beings. They are not eternal beings. They are creations of God that God wisely uses to teach and to help His people understand. So it's not about blood and gore with all the sacrifices. It's communication, God painting a picture with every innocent lamb sacrificed as to how her seed, the Son of God, would come to be the lamb for the entire world. John 1 John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rachel said something earlier this morning, and that was to the effect of Abel's sacrifice had to be difficult, had to be hard. In fact, any time you think of sacrificing a cute little lamb, have you ever seen pictures? Most have not. I had a friend, years ago when I was in youth ministry, I had a friend who sent me slides of a lamb being sacrificed, a practice situation going on in Israel. and It was it was awful. I mean, I, the first one, here come they come carrying this cute little lamb, little pastoral lamb, you know. And they get up there. Second one, they have the knife right at its throat. Third one, they have cut, and all of that white... Wool is blood red. And, then, and, and the amount of blood was stunning. Stirring, to, I, I wish I, I'd show you right now if I had them. Just be thankful I don't. But every sacrifice of Israel, they saw this over and over and over. Abel had to make a hard choice. He had to desire God more than he desired his job. He had to want to please the Lord rather than his own sensibility. And so he offers up the firstlings of his flock. He offers up a lamb because he knew it was what the Lord desired of him. Cain desired to do his things, his way. That's what I I don't, you know, whatever. I, I know God has asked me to do stuff, but I don't care what God's asked me to do. I'm going to do what I think is best. And whenever I bring to God what I think is best, guess what? It's not a sacrifice. It may be an offering of some kind, but it is not a sacrifice. By the way, isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve ate of a single piece of fruit and Cain made fruit his entire offering? He gave what he wanted to give. But Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says by faith, that is by trust, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Even tonight, thousands of years later, Abel is still speaking of the right sacrifice, of what sacrifice looks like. And Abel was intentional, Cain was indifferent. Abel offered his best, and it was costly to him. Cain's offering was cheap and easy, and I submit to you again that both brothers knew exactly what they were doing. God's reaction was based on their hearts. Understand that where there's there's sacrifice, there must be personal cost. That's what sacrifice means. But where there's personal cost, there's also personal investment. You know, when something really costs me, I'll tell you what, I've I've talked about Christopher a lot, I know. Thank you for bearing with me, and please continue to pray for him as we continue through this adoption process. But I'll tell you what, after all that has gone into this adoption, that boy's coming home one way or the other. If I have to row a boat across to Ghana, I'm going to do it and get him home. Because we are invested in this boy. And not just financially, but in so many other things. This is The last 16 months of our lives has been focused on working on getting him home. We're invested. There's a desire to follow through now. And note this, David was invested. David made a bad mistake. Big error. Things were going well in the kingdom. He had quite the army. And he began talking about what a marvelous thing he had done in rebuilding the military. <laughs> Touting his you know investments and his job. And, and he wanted a census. Hey, count up all the fighting men. I want to know how powerful we really are. And God says, mm. I think it was Joab who told David, that's not a good idea. But David did it anyway. And so God sent a pestilence on Israel. And many of those fighting men died. And so the Bible tells us, let me read this to you, in 2 Samuel 24, Gad the prophet came to David that day, and I'm sure David said, eat Gad, <laughs> and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded, and Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. And Aruna said, Why has the Lord my king come to his servant? Now see, at this point, David has Jerusalem. The Jews have conquered Jerusalem. It is now the city of David, but there are Jebusites still living alongside them in peace. So Aruna is one of those, and he's up on what would eventually be called the anyone know? The Temple Mount. Right. So he's up on the Temple Mount. David goes up there. Aruna falls down before him. David says, I'm here to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. And Aruna said to David, Oh, let my Lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes for the oxen for wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No. I will surely buy from you for a price. And I've never forgotten this phrase. Please don't forget it. I will offer. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. I will... Let's retranslate that. I will make no sacrifice, quote-unquote, to the Lord that cost me nothing. If it's easy to do, it's a fruit basket of cane. If it's personal sacrifice... That's the faith of Abel. And that's the big difference about what is going on here. Are my offerings, think about this, ask yourself, are my offerings intentional and sacrificial, or are they indifferent and economical? Do your offerings cost you? If your offerings cost you, then they fall into the category of sacrifice. Can you agree with David? I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the way, David would later say in Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Because God always regards sacrifice that comes from the heart, that is intentional and it is heart chosen. And we know Cain's heart was not in this offering. How do we know that? We know by his reaction, as verse five continues. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Jude tells us what that is. Jude verse 11 says, Woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is defensiveness and anger when things don't go our way. Defensiveness and anger. Our hearts are clearly in the wrong place when we are defensively angry as Cain was here. That's the way of Cain. And by the way, you don't have to be a non-believer to go there, to wander on to the way of Cain. In fact, Jude is warning against those who have crept into the church. Just as Jesus himself warned, Matthew seven seventeen. note this, it's interesting, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Listen to me. Pay close attention to this. You will not always know a false teacher by their teaching. Their teaching may be, for the most part, really good. Their teaching may seem spot on. But the fruit is a dead giveaway. What does the life reveal? What is the fruit of the life? Just like the fruit of Cain. And I'm not talking about his offering. I'm talking about the fruit of his smoldering anger. He knew. He knew what he was bringing was not acceptable. And then when God didn't accept it, oh, he got all sullen, angry. Note this in Galatians chapter 5 verse 20, right before the fruit of the spirit, Paul delineates the deeds of the flesh. Glaring out from the list is outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger, which by the way stands completely opposite to Holy Spirit cultivated self-control. See, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Outbursts of anger, that is a fruit of the way of Cain. And he's angry, and he's downcast, and he's sullen. And the Bible says, Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's an important thing to note. That anger in and of itself is not sin, but it kicks the door open for it. If you struggle with anger... The Bible's answer is don't let the sun go down on it. Don't harbor it. Don't let it smolder within. And then Ephesians 4.27 follows, and do not give the devil an opportunity, and that's what anger does. That's the danger of anger. Not that anger is in and of itself a sin, but anger opens the door for the devil to cause something to happen, as we're about to see with Cain. The devil works, you might say, in the forges of anger and a lack of self-control. Now, God, for his part, God loved Cain. How do you know that? Because he comes to him. He doesn't just leave him be. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? I mean this is just right on. He's checking in with he sees the anger in Cain. He's checking in with Cain's heart, and he shows up to lift up Cain's face. Cain, just do the right thing. And you'll know the joy of that. And your face will be lifted up. By the way, two great verses when your countenance is downcast. Whether by anger or frustration or or sorrow or depression or anything else, when you're looking down instead of looking up, listen, Numbers 6, 24, 25, and 26. Great passage to know. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. It's the kind of verse that when I'm downcast, I don't want to hear. When I'm grumpy... Cheryl came along and I'm grumping about this, that, and the other, and if she came up and said, hey, Rick, yeah, what? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. I don't want to hear that. Why? Because it's going to change my attitude and quick. It will turn a downcast face upward. And it's a good one just to keep in your arsenal. Number six, 24 through 25. The Lord bless you. and keep, He's got you. Downcast, He's got you. Looking down, He'll lift up your face. Let His face shine on you. Another great passage, Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet again praise Him for the help of His countenance. What does that mean? It means all I need is for God to look at me and for me to look back. All I need when I'm downcast is to look up and recognize the Lord my God is looking at me. His face is all I need. And the recognition, the realization of His presence. And note, it's not that Cain goes to God in prayer, but God comes to Cain. Why? God loves Cain. He comes to him. And in essence, He says, look at me. (laughs) I know your heart's angry. Look up. Do what's right because sin wants to take you down. He continues and says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Picture a predatory crouching animal, bent and taut and ready to attack. And God says, You must be the master of this beast, you must have dominion over this animal. And by the way, this implies that we can. The fact that he says this to Cain, you must master it, implies free will. You have a choice here. Cain, you can master this. You can overcome this sin. You have the choice, or you can let it master you. What's it going to be? And from the single law of Genesis 2 And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil itself in Genesis chapter 3. And now to the choice to sin or be mastered by sin in Genesis 4. We see very clearly at the outset of all things that God has handed man and woman free will. We have the right to choose. This is written into the earliest pages of scripture. Well how do we choose to master sin? I'll tell you what the first and best thing you do is you look up. You look up. Don't look down into your mess or down into yourself. You look up to the face of God. You look to Jesus. You look up to the cross. You look to the right sacrifice to the Lamb that was slain. Psalm 105, verse 3, Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. It's really hard to sin when I'm looking for Jesus. It's really tough to do wrong when I am focused on the Lord. I have a hard time sinning in the middle of worship on Sunday morning. I don't know about you. That's a tough time to sin. It's even more difficult for me to sin when I'm in the middle of teaching His Word. A lot easier to sin when I'm looking the other way. When I'm not aware of the face of Jesus. And by the way, here at the very end of the ages, Jesus is saying to you, says to me, Luke 21, 28, when all this begins to take place, in other words, when it all starts to come down, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Look up. Verse 8, after God has come to Cain and given him every chance and tried to encourage him, Cain told Abel, his brother, how weird is that? I mean, stop right there. Don't, don't go barreling beyond it. We'll get to the murder. Just wait. Cain told Abel his brother. He actually conveyed this to Abel. And I don't know how. I can only guess what that was like because it doesn't seem like he softened in his anger as because of what's about to happen. So it was Cain like... I'm ticked off man you made me look bad you know God even had to come and talk to me whatever it was Cain told Abel and Abel knew his brother was fuming he just didn't know how hot it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him and anger kills anger kills whether literally or relationally or spiritually the Bible is so clear on this in many passages that that fuming anger becomes an acidic bitterness when I hold anger in my heart toward a brother toward a sister even if it, and I think I can handle it it becomes bitterness which then just stirs and that bitterness kills relationships and it is the last thing on earth that God wants for us Remember, He's a relational God. Created us to be in fellowship with Him, in fellowship with each other. But bitterness and anger kills relationships till we no longer care about the life of another person. Or oh, you may not go off and actually murder someone. But if you ever have the thought that person's dead to me, you just have. You've just committed. Murder. Jesus said in John chapter 5.21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother then come and present your offering it's amazing how many times I've heard Christians play games with that verse oh you remember that your brother has something against you well my brother doesn't have something against me I have something against him therefore I don't have to reconcile oh come on the whole point is relationship And if there is division between you and a brother, you and a sister, it is really hard to come honestly before the Lord and worship Him. God says, I don't want your offering until you're ready to sacrifice some pride and restore a relationship and reconcile. What does a reconciled relationship look like? It looks like walking in the light. It's being honest with one another. It's nothing hidden between us. It's nothing held back. It's being who we are together, openly and honestly and lovingly in the Lord. And then go give your offering, and guess what? Your offering has now become sacrificial. And that's a good thing. Our first and greatest responsibility in life is to maintain and reconcile relationships. I mean, that's it. That's the bottom line. First, our relationship with the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're supposed to be about. There are all kinds of side things we get into, but relationships are number one. But listen here now to Cain's snarky indifference. He kills his brother. And the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes. <laughs> yes, you are. If you've ever thought, well, they're none of my business. Yes, they are. Ah, she doesn't matter to me. Yes, she does. He's no, no concern of mine. Yes, he is. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then other people are my concern. Right? What, what is that line from Scrooge from A Christmas Carol humanity should be our business right? you were always a good businessman Jacob humanity should be our business well that's true if you're a follower of Jesus and relationship is what matters by the way I don't know how God got this out can you imagine in verse 9 when he says where is Abel your brother? God knew he knew exactly where Abel was Dead in the ground, his blood crying out. God knew, did God choke on those words? Where is Abel, your brother? Understand this. We sometimes read through things like this as a, a Bible study. Oh, that's an interesting thing that happened here. Oh, yeah, the Greek meaning and the Hebrew meaning here is that, you know. And, and God, he went through this. Remember what I told you before. God loved Cain, and God loved. Abel, these two boys, they were both beloved of the Lord, as with Adam and Eve. And now he has to ask the older where the younger is, knowing that the older has killed the younger. And again, he knows where Abel is, just in the same way that Adam and Eve, he knew what they had done. But he comes asking anyway, He's offering the opportunity for confession. Once again, He opened the door with Adam and Eve. Where are you? Did you eat of the fruit I told you not to eat? Would you like to confess this openly to me? Where's your brother? What have you done? The Lord asks. Verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain's remarkable here because he sidesteps confession. You know, Adam and Eve, they played the blame game. He plays the not-my-responsibility card. Doesn't matter to me. John 13.35 says, By this we will all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. First John 3.11, This is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And note that what we discover from the Apostle John is that Satan was active in chapter 4. We see him in the serpent in chapter 3. But with the murder of Abel by Cain, we don't necessarily see Satan there until we get all the way to 1 John Chapter 3 where Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. So now we know, guess what? Satan's still active. Satan is still impacting lives. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The old rabbis say, if you kill one, you kill the world. Very wise. Because their implication is the murder of an individual wipes out entire generations that would have come had that individual lived. All those, it's not just one person. This makes the abortion issue even more serious than it is already. That every single one of those infants aborted, every one was a potential generation of people that now will never know existence. That's a big deal. And in every case of murder, it is absolutely true. Kill one, you kill the world with one stunning exception. One murder that is the complete opposite. Hebrews 12.24 says you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You see, every other human being ever murdered in all of history was a murder of generations. But the murder of Jesus Christ is the salvation of generations. Changes everything. In the case of the murder of Christ, His death brought life back to the world. And while Abel's blood cries out for vengeance and for justice from the ground, the blood of Christ cries for mercy and grace to every heart that will simply trust Him. Everyone that will believe. Even Cain. Wait, you're saying Cain was saved? No. I'm actually answering a question. Could Cain have been forgiven for murdering Abel? Could he have found forgiveness? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess, if we confess, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we don't confess, the heart gets hard. The danger is Cain's heart for all its previous fiery anger has now gone stone cold. That's the way of Cain. He's hardened. Watch verse 11. Now, the Lord speaking, you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. God doesn't right there say, he's cursing Cain. And we talked about that on Sunday a little bit. It's really interesting in the early curses of Genesis, though the people end up cursed. They're cursed by their own sin. But God never directly curses the individual himself. doesn't say to Adam, you are cursed, or to Eve, you are cursed. He curses the serpent and he curses the ground. In fact, he says, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Therefore, Adam's sin brought the curse, not the Lord speaking it. And that's important to note, because where God curses, he's eternal. And it becomes irrevocable. He's very careful with his words. He's very careful with those whom he curses. He cursed the serpent, and the serpent is temporary. The serpent will not last forever. The serpent will still be cursed and on its belly all the way through the millennial kingdom, and then it will cease to exist. But when he's dealing with man and woman, even sinful man and woman, even non-confessing man and woman, he leaves the door open for confession, for repentance, and for a return to him. But he says now you are cursed or cursed art thou from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand when you cultivate the ground it will no longer yield its strength to you this is, this is tough Cain's a gardener your job is over bro you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and Cain said to the Lord my punishment is too great to bear how about Abel's oh I feel so bad for you Cain That you're going to lose your gardening license. Your brother is dead, and this see here's where you see a hard heart. Who's he concerned about? Himself. He doesn't show show a shred of concern or or hurt or sorrow over the murder of his brother. You will not find it out of the lips of Cain. My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Somebody called an ambulance. Cain decries four things here. Number one, he lost the farm. He will not be able to work the land anymore. Number two, he left the fellowship of the Lord. By the way, note that in verse 14, when he says, You have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face, it says, I will be hidden. It is literally, I will hide. You've driven me from the ground? From your face, I will hide. Not going to see me around here. Not going to be in this church anymore. Not going to show my face where you are, God. From your face, I will hide hide what did Adam and Eve do when they sinned they hid, same thing the first thing they thought to do was hide from the Lord and now Cain is just repeating it in this next generation when we talk about generational sin here's the deal, the sins of the father visited on the sins of the son he's just repeating what he saw, what he learned at least what he understood from his parents, he's doing the same thing He didn't see it because he wasn't there, but you know what I'm saying. He's just repeating the same thing, trying to hide from God. He lost the farm. He left by his choice. I will hide from you. He now is going to leave the fellowship of the Lord, and he says, and I'll be a fugitive. Third thing. And fourthly, I'm going to be the focus of someone else's murderous attack. Someone else is going to try to kill me. Now that's interesting because God never says that. So Cain adds this in, and as part of his punishment, it's really ironic. I'm going to be driven out and and, and, and a wanderer, and, and now someone's going to try and kill me. Well, you're the first murderer. So now you're worried about someone doing to you what you already did. It's interesting to me when he complains, my punishment is more than I can bear. And he's right. He's right. Listen, our punishment is always more than we can bear. The punishment for sin is always more than any of us can bear. We don't just get off scot-free. Unless we come to faith in Jesus and are forgiven, the punishment is always much greater than we comprehend, than we understand. You cannot bear the weight of your sin. I can't bear the punishment that my sin would produce. Why? Because the punishment's eternal. Because sin against an eternal God produces an eternal punishment. And I can't bear that. So Cain's right. The punishment, it, it, it's too much. Yes. No payment, no penance could ever be enough when you sin against an eternal God. And by the way, note this, all sin is against Him. You realize that? We don't even really sin against one another. Oh, we do, I guess, but directly speaking, when I sin against you, my sin is against the Lord. When I sin against another, He's the one who feels it. And David got this. i got to read this to you. It's Psalm 51. But listen to the difference between the heart of David, a man after God's own heart, And the heart of Cain, the way of Cain, which is unrepentant throughout. Listen to David. Be gracious to me, O God. By the way, this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So, there's your background. Slept with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, got her husband, murdered in battle, and then took her into himself and covered up the whole thing. So, just as Cain was a murderer, so David was a murderer. Listen to David's heart. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says further down in verse 7, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Here's David's great concern. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, and do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What is Cain saying? I will hide from you. And David saying, don't leave me. And the difference, my friends, is faith. One man has faith enough to know his only hope in life is Jesus. And the other man has no faith and could care less. We can walk the path of David and confess to the Lord, or we can go the way of Cain and contend with the living God, or worse, worse than the contentious response of Cain, watch this. His whimpering defensiveness, it reveals something else. Whoever finds me will kill me, he says at the end of verse 14. So Cain adds in the fear of murder because someone may come after him. Someone may try to kill him. Why? Revenge killing. Someone who knew Abel, who finds out about this, another brother perhaps, could come along and seek Cain's life to kill him in punishment to pay him back for taking Abel out of the world. But what's interesting is Cain's assumption, get this, listen, his assumption that other people are out there. See, he's already saying, I'll be a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain already tells us there are more people than Cain, Abel, Adam, and Eve. Someone else is out there who might come after me. Someone else might try to kill me. Genesis chapter 5, verse 4 says, The days of Adam after he became father of Sheth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And we have no idea what order they came in except that they came after Sheph. So there was Cain, Abel, and and Sheph. It's actually Sheph, not Seth, but there are other sons. We don't know when the daughters fell. Was there Cain and then a couple of daughters or five daughters and then Abel? I, I don't know. Why doesn't the Bible tell us? Because the Bible is not a history book. The Bible is a relationship book that is telling us about God. That the whole focus is God. And how He interacts with different individuals, different stories that are selected out and told to us so that we can see God in interaction with people, not every nuance of everything. And by the way, I don't apologize for this, but I know that there are some people who have been disappointed with Genesis so far. Because they've looked so forward to the scientific, biological aspects of it and all the scientific evidence that Pastor Rick's going to bring. I can't wait to hear that. And I really haven't touched on that. Why not? Because it's not the point of the book. God is the point. Jesus is the focus. And we can get into all that. i got stacks of books up there. They're all about the scientific evidences and proofs and And the apologetics, and they're all fascinating, and we could spend the next year in Genesis chapter 1 just going through all these different things, but we would miss the point. For all the knowledge, we would miss the point of the book, which is 66 books in a library to show us God. That's why we're opening this. We're not here to prove anything. We're here to talk about the Lord God. So, we don't know anything about the timeline outside the garden when these other sons and daughters were born we just see God interacting here and in verse 15 the Lord said to him therefore whoever kills Cain vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold or seven times and the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him and in true fashion to his own nature we see God being merciful this is God This should tell you who he is. God of mercy. Even for a murderer, even for a murderer, he puts a sign of protection on Cain. What is the sign? This is interesting. Some rabbis believe it was a letter that was written perhaps on Cain's forehead, or all four letters of the name of God, Yahweh, written on his forehead. Others think that it was leprosy. That'll keep people away. <laughs> just give him leprosy and you're good to go. Problem with that is that Cain's going to get married, and I'm not sure how that would work. Some think, I kid you not, in fact, there's even famous artwork that depicts this that Cain grew a horn on his head a horn of defense. Try to kill me, I'll just get you people actually have come up with all kinds of bizarrities, and my response to that is what the Bible doesn't say just leave it alone (laughs) just leave it alone verse 16 verse 16 one of the most tragic verses in all of the scriptures then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden Cain went out Cain left the presence of the Lord. Do you know what that means? Do you understand what we just discovered here? God left the garden with Adam and Eve. Just because he booted them out of the garden does not mean he booted them out of his presence. Because the presence of the Lord was there. Cain left the presence. The presence was with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel outside the garden. Now some have suggested, and, and we've talked about this a little bit, that perhaps the presence of the Lord was remaining, that His presence was there at the east gate of Eden with the cherubim and the enthroned and the flaming sword and, and that His presence, His Shekinah glory was there and that's what's being talked about. I think it's much more than that. Anytime the Scriptures talk about the presence of the Lord, God is there. He, he's, he's with us. Hebrews 13.5 he himself has said, "I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you." It's one of my favorite verses. Remember this is one of the, this is the, the five negatives positive promise. That is literally translated, "I will not, cannot leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. Hebrews 13:5 memorize that. The presence of the Lord. they're kicked out of the garden and God goes right along with them. He does not deny them His presence but you can deny Him yours. You can deny the presence of the Lord. You can forsake Him. You can leave. In sin and by choice, Cain leaves the presence of the Lord. And he settled, again it says, in the land of Nod, which some of you are there right now. (laughs) Wake up. The land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. This is not the same Enoch who gets raptured later on. This is a different Enoch. This is the line of Cain. We'll talk about that other Enoch next week. But gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son, which is a direct defiance of God because he is supposed to be a wanderer, not a city dweller. But he built a city. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. And Lamech took to himself two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. (laughs) And Ada gave, I'm not even going to make puns, just let it go. Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. And we're going to stop right there for tonight. I just read this section. We're going to come back and look closer on Sunday morning at the line of Cain. But listen, from Cain to Lamech's four kids... Are exactly seven generations, including Cain to the children of Lamech, seven generations, and then the line of Cain stops cold. And some think that the sevenfold vengeance that protected Cain, that God said, You will be avenged sevenfold if anyone tries to take your life, that it lasted seven generations and then it stopped. It's an interesting parallel. But what we can know for certain is that that is it for the way of Cain. That's as far as the family line goes. Well, what happened to his posterity then? Any and all who were still living were washed away in the flood. No one of the line of Cain existed after the flood. And we see in that line, and we'll talk about on Sunday, it is a downward spiral, for the most part, a downward spiral. Let me end with Genesis 4.16 Then Cain went out, note again, from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Some people think that's China. It's just a guess. It would be east of where Eden would have been located. But the word settled here is literally dwelt. It's not settled. Because again, he was a nomad. He became a wanderer. Settled is dwelt. And the... The name Nod, no one really knows where is, this, where is this land of Nod. Well, Nod in Hebrew literally means aimless wandering. That, that Cain dwelt in the land of aimless wandering. Which describes the curse that was on him. And it also describes, listen, it describes what happens when a person leaves the presence of the Lord. You go to the land of aimless wandering. You go dwell in the land of Nod. May we choose to live like David who said again in Psalm 51 11, Do not cast me away from Your presence and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Father, that's my prayer. That for our failures and for our sins, for our broken relationships, for our anger issues, for our murders of those close to us. Obviously, Father, it's rare when that's literal, but, but relationally, when we kill relationship, when we divide, when we hurt, oh, Father, I cry out to You, do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast us away from Your presence. Your presence is everything to us. We would not survive this life, much less into eternity without the dear presence of our most holy God. We love You, Lord. And tonight, we we pause long enough to say, forgive us for those things which we don't know that we're doing. Forgive us for the sins we have done intentionally. Forgive us, Lord. We confess to You our great need for You, Jesus. Our need for sacrifice. Our need for Your blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We just come asking, do not remove your presence from this place, or from our lives, from our homes, from our hearts, Father. But make us aware. Always, Lord, make us aware of your presence within us. We thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. we stop in a place that's a little dark let me give you a, a little bright spot at the very end of the chapter verse 26 and we'll come back to this Sunday says to Seth to him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord but tonight as we end with this line of Cain it is a dark place to end and we do see throughout the character and the nature of Cain and the heart of Cain and how hard, how hard it really was. And that's the only thing that can keep us from the presence of God is when our hearts grow hard and cold. That's when the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happens because that's when we say we want nothing to do. We're going to hide ourselves from God. We're going to depart. We're going to go out from His presence. God doesn't want to leave you. And God is always inviting into. His presence.